Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and substance abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Jamie Long shuffled down the courthouse steps to a police car, trying not to cry. It was all over. The next seven years of her life would be spent behind bars. Reporters fluttered around her, shoving microphones in her face and torturing her with obnoxious questions. Did she have any regrets? Jamie turned away from them. Of course she had regrets, but it didn't matter what she said. They distort her words and print a bunch of lies anyway. It was best to stay quiet. Nothing she could say would change the fact that she was in handcuffs. She never should have gone out of her way to help a friend. She'd lost her freedom, all because she took pity on Sarah Jo Pender. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. Last week, we met 21-year-old Sarah Jo Pender and her boyfriend, 22-year-old Richard Hull. They were a hard-partying couple who frequently experimented with drugs. In the fall of 2000, they killed their roommates, Trisha Nordman and Andrew Cataldi. On October 27th, police arrested Richard Hull for the murders. Sarah was released after she cooperated and led them to the murder weapon, a 12-gauge shotgun. This week, we'll discuss how police grew more suspicious of Sarah's true involvement as their investigation continued. We'll also talk about how Richard and Sarah betrayed each other and why Sarah tried to avoid accountability in the years that followed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. 
The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. On October 27, 2000, police arrested 22-year-old Richard Hull in his hometown of Noblesville, Indiana. His girlfriend, 21-year-old Sarah Pender, went home to stay with her father, Roland. She thought she was completely in the clear. She later said, Never once in my mind did I ever think that I was going to be arrested for murder. However, authorities weren't finished with their investigation into the deaths of Trisha Nordman and Andrew Cataldi. When Sarah led Detective Ken Martinez to the motel room where she and Richard had stashed the murder weapon, the officer had also found a receipt for the gun. The next day, Detective Martinez went to the Walmart and spoke with the clerk who sold the shotgun. He was surprised to find that Sarah had bought the weapon, not Richard. This was enough for Martinez to suspect that Sarah and Richard had plotted to kill Andrew and Trisha together. Sarah wasn't exactly the naive, innocent woman she'd pretended to be during her interrogation. He believed that Sarah was, at the very least, an accessory to the murders. He asked her to come back to the police station. When Detective Martinez confronted Sarah about the shotgun, she admitted to purchasing it under her name, but insisted it was Richard's idea. Still, officers placed her under arrest that same morning. Sarah and Richard's lawyers quickly went to work, trying to negotiate plea bargains for their clients. The negotiations went on for several long months while the defendants remained locked up in jail. Sarah passed the time by writing letters. She wrote several times to Richard. These messages revealed her shifting feelings towards her accomplice. In some of their letters, Sarah lavished praise on Richard and told him that she still wanted a future with him, no matter what happened. She held on to hope that she would soon be free, and she told him that she would still be loyal to him, even if he remained in prison. She wrote, I am not going to run out and find a replacement for you. How could I? It would be impossible. I don't think about other men or desire the company of anyone but you. Sarah may have been trying to keep Richard loyal to her side and assumed praise was the way to do it. Before I continue with Sarah's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Nearly every law enforcement figure in Sarah's life has labeled her a manipulator. This includes police, lawyers, and correctional officers. According to the late psychologist and author, Dr. Harriet B. Breaker, Manipulators operate from the viewpoint, consciously or unconsciously, that they are entitled to have their needs met and their purposes served. The manipulator who operates from this mindset of entitlement believes that they are special and that they merit special compliance from others. They think that they are entitled to have subordinates. In jail, Sarah's letters were her only means of influencing others. In them, Sarah promised Richard she'd be loyal to him, in return, she expected him to continue taking the blame for the murders. 
she became furious when she heard rumors that he was making incriminating statements about her to the police. She called him a snitch, writing, Do you think trying to condemn an innocent person to a life sentence will never come back to haunt you? Even so, she never stayed angry for long and her letters inevitably turned optimistic again. She wrote to Richard that she was sure both of them would be released soon. She didn't believe a jury would convict them because as far as she was concerned, Andrew and Trisha weren't very sympathetic victims. She thought the roommates had gotten what they deserved. Sarah also wrote that the police and prosecutors were too stupid to make a case against them. As long as Richard and Sarah kept quiet, they'd both walk free. But Sarah's words would come back to haunt her. On July 17, 2001, authorities executed a search warrant on Sarah and Richard's jail cells. Police confiscated their entire correspondence. The letters revealed that Sarah hadn't just ridiculed the police and prosecutors, She'd insulted her own lawyer as well. When her letters became public, her attorney withdrew from the case. He had been trying to secure an immunity deal for Sarah in exchange for her testimony against Richard. But when prosecutors discovered Sarah's letters, any possibility of a deal disappeared. Sarah watched her lawyer leave the jail cell, knowing she'd never see him again. It wasn't fair. Her lawyer, her family, they expected her to be perfect, like a sweet, well-behaved little girl, a doll. Apparently, she wasn't even allowed to make jokes. They didn't understand what it was like with nothing to do and long hours to fill. Writing letters was the only thing she had left. She lost her friends, her freedom, everything she cared about. She had no outlet, no way to blow off steam. Couldn't they see that? Sarah flopped back onto her cot. She wished she could just go to sleep and not wake up until all of this was over. No matter what her idiot lawyer said, there had to be a way out of this. She didn't belong in jail. If she couldn't get a deal, she'd have to convince a jury that she was innocent. They'd believe her. They'd have to let her go free. Sarah refused to accept any other scenario. After withdrawing from the case, Sarah's attorneys told her family, she has literally snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. There was nothing left for Sarah to do but await her trial. She dealt with the creeping despair by seeking comfort with new lovers. While in jail, she became romantically involved with several other prisoners. One was a woman, Jamie Long, who was briefly Sarah's cellmate. As far as Jamie was concerned, the two women were in love. Jamie described Sarah as her wife, saying, We're a lot alike. I'm just another version of her. But Sarah's love was not exclusive. She was also involved with a male inmate named Floyd Pennington. Floyd and Sarah met while attending Catholic Mass at the jail, and before long, Sarah was writing him letters as well. They corresponded for several months, but even if Floyd enjoyed Sarah's letters, he felt no loyalty toward her. In September of 2001, Floyd contacted Detective Ken Martinez, hoping to exchange information on Sarah for a plea deal. He informed the detective that he had letters to prove their relationship and promised that he could get a confession out of her. 
A few days later, he and Sarah crafted a plan to see each other in person. Both faked illnesses and were sent to Wishard Memorial Hospital. Their ruse was successful and they spent the afternoon lying in hospital beds at the ER with minimal supervision. There, they chatted for several hours. Over the course of their conversations, Sarah admitted to Floyd she orchestrated the murders of Andrew Cataldi and Trisha Nordman because the roommates had cheated her and Richard out of their fair share of drug money. Floyd later told police, she used Rick as a pawn to commit those murders. She was the brains and he was the muscle. However, Floyd was not exactly an unbiased witness. He was already facing 56 years in prison and was highly motivated to help the authorities in exchange for a more lenient sentence. In fact, he was so desperate for a plea deal that he told Detective Martinez that he was willing to turn in evidence against a list of drug and weapons dealers in the area. He wrote to the police, I will help make buys, wear wires, talk on the phone taps, or whatever I have to do. But Floyd's statement wasn't the only piece of critical evidence from one of Sarah's lovers. In January of 2002, lead prosecutor Larry Sells asked 23-year-old Richard Hull to take a polygraph test. During the exam, Richard told the examiner that he didn't shoot Andrew and Trisha. In fact, he claimed, he hadn't been present for the murders at all. According to the examiner, Richard's test results indicated that he was telling the truth. Richard told authorities, I admit what I did afterwards, disposing the bodies is a crime, but I did not shoot these two people. After more than a year in jail, Richard apparently decided he'd protected Sarah Pender long enough. Despite her efforts to manipulate them into silence, the men in Sarah's life were finally speaking out against her. Coming up, Sarah Jo Pender stands trial for double murder. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Now, back to the story. After she was arrested for the murder of her two roommates in the fall of 2000, 21-year-old Sarah Jo Pender remained in jail for nearly two years. Finally, in July of 2002, her trial began. Lead prosecutor Larry Sells laid out the three possibilities for the jury to consider. First, that Sarah shot the victims herself on the night of the crime. Second, that she helped her boyfriend, Richard Hole, commit the murders. And third, 
that she manipulated Richard into committing the murders on her behalf. According to the prosecutor, it didn't matter which of these scenarios was the truth. In each case, Sarah was guilty of murder. Mr. Sells didn't mince words in describing Sarah's depravity. He labeled her the female Charles Manson for her ability to convince others to do her bidding. To bolster the murder case, the prosecution called Floyd Pennington to the stand. Sarah's pen pal and lover testified that she confessed to him that she had plotted the murders and pressured Richard to follow through on them. Floyd added, she had no feelings for the victims and showed no emotion or remorse. The prosecution also submitted a second critical piece of evidence, a letter Sarah wrote to Richard Hole in 2001. It read, I wish I could go back and change the events of that night. I snapped. I didn't mean to kill them. It must have been the acid. When you said you would try and take the blame, I knew that you loved me deeply. Sarah denied writing the letter, claiming it was a forgery. Despite her protest, the jury was swayed. On July 24, 2002, after just a few hours of deliberation, 23-year-old Sarah Jo Pender was found guilty. Sarah stood frozen in the courtroom, staring vacantly at the jury box. She was stunned. Just one thought kept racing through her mind. How could they do it? She wasn't a murderer. It wasn't fair. She started hyperventilating. Her head was swimming. This was a mistake. It had to be rectified. It would take money, maybe a better lawyer, or friends on the outside willing to help. She could get those things. She would make them pay. She latched onto that glimmer of hope and refused to let it go. Then she turned away from the cameras in the back of the courtroom and stood up. She didn't want anyone to see her looking beaten. She wasn't a loser. She was going to fight. Sarah was sentenced to 110 years in prison and sent to the Rockville Correctional Facility in Park County, Indiana. She wasted no time in appealing her conviction. As she waited for her appeal to move forward, Richard Hole prepared for his own trial. In January of 2003, 25-year-old Richard pled guilty to murder. His attorney reiterated that Richard was not the mastermind behind the murders, saying, Mr. Hole has never denied he played a part of it, but he was not a major player. Richard received two consecutive 45-year sentences for his guilty plea. However, a few months after his sentencing, Richard Hole again reversed course. He knew Sarah was appealing her conviction and decided to lend her his support. In a new affidavit, Richard took full responsibility for the murders and retracted his previous statements against Sarah. He affirmed that he shot Andrew and Trisha himself. Sarah only helped after the fact. He also said that he had faked Sarah's confession letter. He claimed that his cellmate, Steve Logan, had forged the letter for him. In the years that followed, he flip-flopped repeatedly. In later interviews, he reverted to his original story, once again blaming Sarah for the murders. Richard apparently couldn't decide whether to protect Sarah or not, but in the end, it didn't matter. By 2006, all of Sarah's appeals were rejected. 
the 27-year-old will stay in prison for the rest of her life. As the years passed, Sarah continued to maintain her innocence. She complained that it wasn't fair that she was given a life sentence for someone else's crimes. However, she was determined to make the best of things. She pursued educational opportunities in prison, joined the church choir, and participated in recreational activities. She volunteered for a program that allowed prisoners to train dogs and helped launch a green energy and recycling program at the facility. To all who knew her, she was a model prisoner. But Sarah had a knack for leading a double life. Since her teens, she had kept up the appearance of an upstanding citizen, all while doing drugs and committing petty crimes. In prison, it was no different. Even as Sarah professed innocence, she was participating in illicit activities. At some point, Sarah became involved in a prison smuggling ring. She traded sex with a corrupt guard, Scott Spittler, in exchange for drugs and cell phones, which she then sold to her fellow inmates. Research indicates that corrections officers are particularly vulnerable to corruption because they are required to do a difficult job with little training, low pay, and few protections. In an interview with Business Insider, criminal justice expert Martin F. Horn pointed out that every state and municipality in the country has cut its officer staffing. I firmly believe that the result is officers are terrified. One way of keeping themselves safe is aligning with the inmates. From Spittler, Sarah collected many useful items. Not long after her appeals were rejected, she managed to get her hands on a prison guard uniform. She later said, that's where I got the idea of walking out. She began to plot a way to escape from prison. Sarah shared the idea with her closest friends. Using a contraband cell phone, she informed those she felt she could trust, including Richard Hole. Richard later said, I thought she was blowing smoke because everyone talks about it and thinks they have it figured out. I told her she was crazy. But Sarah would not be deterred. She also kept in touch with her former jailhouse lover, 42-year-old Jamie Long. Jamie had already served her time and was released a few years prior. Sarah asked Jamie if she'd consider helping her escape. Sarah was adept at using flattery and affection to win people over. She later said, I had charm. You know, obviously I had to have some charm to get people to help me, but they helped me because they believed in me. Jamie was all too happy to jump on board. After Sarah roped Jamie into her scheme, she secured another ally in the corrupt prison guard, Scott Spittler. Spittler later told authorities that Sarah offered him $15,000 if he would help her escape. He quickly agreed. With Spittler's help, Sarah realized she wouldn't even need the prison guard uniform she had acquired. He told her that there was an unguarded gate near the prison's fueling station. If Sarah could make it there, she could simply walk out. Spittler even passed her a set of civilian clothes to use as a disguise. On the morning of August 4th, 2008, 29-year-old Sarah Pender got dressed. She put on her civilian outfit, then wore her prison uniform over it. Around 2.30 that afternoon, she made a routine visit to the prison's recreation room, where inmates were meeting with visitors. When nobody was looking, she slipped into the gymnasium next door. 
discarded the prison uniform and hid it behind a ceiling tile. Now in civilian clothes, Sarah left the gymnasium and walked outside to the prison grounds. She was lucky. She didn't run into anyone as she moved past the administrative buildings. From there, she walked toward the fueling station where Spitler and his car were waiting. As Spitler refueled the vehicle, Sarah slipped into the back seat. Spitler then drove Sarah to the prison's visitor parking lot. There, Jamie Long was waiting in her Oldsmobile. Sarah crept out of Spitler's car and into Jamie's. Jamie drove away from the Rockville Correctional Facility, heading east towards Indianapolis. Sarah was exuberant. She later described her thoughts on the brash escape by saying, This is an adventure. I can't believe we pulled this off. At 4 p.m., about 90 minutes after Sarah escaped, prison officials conducted a headcount and realized that they were one prisoner short. By then, Sarah was miles away. She had pulled off a prison break. Coming up, Sarah tries to stay one step ahead of the authorities, hunting her down. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Now, back to the story. On August 4th, 2008, 29-year-old Sarah Pender escaped from a correctional facility in Rockville, Indiana. Prison officials scrambled to figure out what happened, but by the time they were aware of the escape, Sarah had already traveled more than 60 miles east of the prison. That afternoon, Sarah's friend, Jamie Long, brought her to a vacant house in Indianapolis. Her husband was renovating the place to be sold, but it wasn't finished. Jamie left Sarah with some clothes and a prepaid cell phone. Then the two women said their goodbyes. Once Jamie was gone, Sarah called another ex-convict friend of hers, Peggy Darlington. Her whole life, Sarah had found ways to manipulate others to do what she wanted. Like Jamie, Peggy was easily convinced to help. After picking Sarah up from the vacant house, Peggy brought her home where she was hosting a party. Sarah happily blended into the crowd, drinking and smoking marijuana. She stayed at the house overnight, oblivious to the news broadcasts already reporting the prison break. Later, Sarah called both her parents to tell them she was okay. She also called Richard Hole to gloat about the escape. He called her crazy once again, but Sarah didn't care. As far as she was concerned, she had won. But by the next day, August 5th, the U.S. Marshal's Office, State Police, and Department of Correction officials had put together a team to track Sarah down. They began to piece together how Sarah managed to escape. Some of Sarah's fellow inmates, who were privy to her plans, told prison officials about Scott Spitler's involvement. 
When confronted, Spittler immediately confessed. He was arrested that afternoon and led police to Jamie Long, who was also arrested. But neither Spittler nor Jamie could tell police anything about Sarah's whereabouts. After spending the night at Peggy's house, Sarah fled to a Motel 6 in Northeast Indianapolis. By then, news of her escape was playing on every station. Worried about being recognized, Sarah cut and dyed her hair in the motel bathroom. Then she contacted yet another friend she'd met during her prison stay, 43-year-old Thea Fisher. Thea took Sarah back to her house and the two women brainstormed about how to get some fast cash. Thea sometimes made money as a sex worker and knew of a man looking to pay good money for a threesome. Sarah was willing to participate, so Thea brought her to meet the client, a 53-year-old man named Tom Welch. Sarah liked Tom right away and introduced herself as Ashley Thompson. She felt a connection with Tom after their initial tryst and wanted to keep the party going. The three spent the next few days in a motel room together, having sex. At some point, Thea spilled Sarah's secret. She told Tom that Sarah had recently escaped from prison. Tom didn't seem to care. He was quickly falling under Sarah's spell. He later said, I was hooked after the first day. I don't know if she learned psychology, hypnosis, I don't know, because she trances you, she does. Although Sarah was honest about her murder conviction, she told Tom the same story she told everyone else, that Richard Hole was the real murderer. She felt justified in escaping, she said. She didn't deserve to spend the rest of her life in prison for his crimes. The explanation was good enough for Tom. He later said that he really did believe her. She didn't seem like a killer to him. After a few days at the hotel, the trio took a trip to a casino in Rising Sun, Indiana. Tom bought Sarah jewelry and treated her to a dinner and a show. While enjoying the city, Sarah plotted how to take advantage of her new relationship. She could tell that Tom was enamored with her and she decided it was time to ask for a favor. She knew she couldn't live the rest of her life in a hotel room, relying on the generosity of her ex-convict friends. She asked Tom if he could help her find a job. Within a week, he persuaded a friend to hire Sarah for a manager position at a construction business near Cincinnati. Using her alias, Ashley Thompson, Sarah told her new boss that she had to keep her identity a secret because she had recently escaped an abusive marriage to a police officer. Her boss was sympathetic and even allowed her to live in an apartment at the construction site. The arrangement seemed ideal, but after a few weeks, Sarah became restless. She missed Tom, who was still living in Indianapolis. She was also worried, now that they weren't seeing each other every day, that Tom might slip and reveal her secrets. She called him incessantly. Tom later said, she always wanted to know where I was, what I was doing. She must have gotten real panicky. When they couldn't speak by phone, Sarah checked in with Tom by writing him a letter. In it, she discussed the deaths of Trisha and Andrew. She seemed remarkably nonchalant about the murders. She wrote, I am not sorry they are dead. People die all the time for lots of reasons, many at young ages. 
Killing people is not such a big deal because people die. We are human. The letter also referred to a previous conversation they'd had. Tom had brought up the possibility of killing his wife so he and Sarah could be together. However, in her letter, Sarah advised him to get a divorce instead. Perhaps she thought she was in enough trouble already. About a month after her prison escape, Sarah decided she had stayed in one place long enough. She left her job and rode a bus 200 miles north to Toledo, Ohio. Tom called her cell phone during the journey and told her he wanted to join her. The two decided to head for Chicago. Sarah may have hoped she'd be safer, more anonymous in a large city, but authorities were still searching for her. They were leaving no stone unturned. In October, about two months after Sarah's escape, the television program America's Most Wanted aired a special on her. The episode resulted in a stream of tips from the public, but none of them led to her capture. By October 20th, Sarah made it onto the U.S. Marshals' 15 Most Wanted Fugitive list. But if Sarah worried that authorities were closing in, she didn't show it. Although Tom eventually returned to his wife in Indiana, he and Sarah scheduled regular visits with each other. While in Chicago together, they lived like a regular couple. Among the millions of people going about their lives, Sarah felt safer living life in the open. She found a new administrative job at another construction company. She had no social security number or identification, but she managed to get by without it. She easily won people's sympathy by lying about escaping an abusive police officer husband. She earned good money, enough to sublet her own little apartment. Finally, it seemed she was content. Sarah later said, There were times that I had $1,500 in my pocket, and I actually thought about getting on a bus and visiting my dad in Seattle, or going to Florida to see my mom, or even going to New York and getting lost. But I wanted to stay with Tom. Things were going too well to leave. On November 15, 2008, the television network ran Sarah Pender's episode of America's Most Wanted again. For some reason, Sarah and Tom watched it together. The gravity of his situation finally sank in for Tom. He was harboring a fugitive. He asked if she would consider turning herself in, but Sarah wasn't interested. In fact, she was looking into getting plastic surgery to make herself less recognizable. She was still mulling over her options on December 20th, 2008, when America's Most Wanted aired an end-of-year roundup on the program's past subjects. The episode again highlighted Sarah's case. That same night around 10 p.m., an anonymous man called the Chicago Police Department. He informed the police that he had just seen an episode of America's Most Wanted and that a woman profiled on the show was his neighbor. He gave her address and apartment number and advised the police that the woman who had been called Sarah on television was living under the name Ashley Thompson. Then he hung up without ever identifying himself. Apparently, the caller wasn't interested in collecting the $25,000 reward for information leading to Sarah's capture. It's possible the caller was Tom Welch, too afraid to give more details for fear of implicating himself in her crimes. 
Regardless, the Chicago police took the tip seriously, even though they had no idea who had been profiled on America's Most Wanted that evening. That night, half a dozen police officers followed up. While three waited downstairs, the others went to apartment 3E and knocked on the door. Sarah opened it. All they had to ask was, who are you? What's your real name? Faced with the officers, she said, okay, you guys finally got me. She later said, I just knew it was time to go. I'd always known there was going to come a day. More than four months after her escape from Rockville Correctional Facility, Sarah was back in police custody. Sarah sat in the back of the sedan, staring out the window as the car hurtled forward toward her future, back in prison. She began to recognize landmarks. They were getting close to Indianapolis. Tears spilled down her cheeks. A police officer sitting in the seat next to her offered her his iPod, a little lifeline to make her feel human. Sarah took his headphones, listened to music, and tried to forget about what was coming. The past few months were already starting to feel like a dream. It was one she didn't want to wake up from. She reflected back on food and restaurants, good coffee, music, hot, steamy showers, crowds, and Tom. She wondered if he was in trouble because of her. She had already decided that she wouldn't tell the police anything about him. She smiled ruefully. She was always too loyal to the men in her life, even when it got her in trouble. But there wasn't much point in changing her ways now. After her capture, Sarah was sent to the Indiana Women's Prison, a maximum security facility. Once there, she was placed in solitary confinement. In letters, she said she had no plans to attempt another escape, writing, that stuff is over. It was a one-time deal and I'm over it, but they'll always be afraid that I'll escape again and get another job and not pay my taxes. I am such a menace to society. Although Sarah accepted her stay in prison, she did object to her living conditions in solitary confinement. She told interviewers, I can't make phone calls. I can't have visits. I can't even flush my own toilet. The staff can't even talk to me. She said that the harsh punishment served no practical purpose. She wasn't a security risk. It was all merely payback for embarrassing the state of Indiana by escaping prison. She insisted that solitary had a detrimental effect on her mental health. Her claim is supported by evidence. Craig Haney, professor of psychology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, has said that inmates placed in solitary are at grave risk of psychological harm. These prisoners experience panic attacks, depression, and paranoia, and some suffer hallucinations. Dr. Haney has recommended strict limitations on the amount of time a prisoner may be kept in solitary, stating, no prisoner should be subjected continuously to confinement for longer than a period of two years. Sarah Pender remained in solitary confinement for the next five years, a total of 1,870 days, and suffered severe trauma as a result. 
In a 2017 feature in GQ, in partnership with the organization Solitary Watch, she said, After nine months of isolation, I started taking psychiatric medication. After 15 months, I had what the psychiatrist called a psychotic break. My personality has essentially been amputated. Prison mental health professionals noted that she suffered from depressed motor function, disassociation, and cognitive paralysis, among other problems. She was released from solitary confinement and returned to the general prison population in 2014. At that time, no other woman in any of Indiana's prisons had ever been confined for that length of time. Now, nearly 20 years after her arrest, Sarah's story has been featured in several true crime programs and documentaries. With the publicity surrounding her case, Sarah has acquired a number of vocal supporters. Many believe her story that she had nothing to do with the murders and only helped Richard Hole cover up the crime out of fear for her life. Even Larry Sells, the prosecutor who tried her case, the man who gave her the nickname the female Charles Manson, now believes she should be granted a new trial. He feels that it was a mistake to rely on the testimony of jailhouse snitch Floyd Pennington. He doesn't necessarily think Sarah is innocent of murdering Andrew Cataldi and Trisha Nordman, but he has said, to this date, I don't know what happened in that house. Only two people do. I just know that she did not receive a fair trial. Sarah's sister has launched a petition asking Indiana's governor to pardon Sarah. To date, she has gathered nearly 1,500 signatures. She launched an updated petition in April 2020 related to the coronavirus pandemic. But for now, Sarah remains behind bars. She is up for parole in 2054. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.